Hi, I'm Pastor David Jones. Welcome to my sermon archives. For more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. I pray God speaks to you as you listen. We are in our 20th and next to last message on pictures of the church in the Bible. Today we're talking about the church as the city on a hill. Let's start with our memory verse. Repeat after me if you would please. John 13, 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. John 13, 35. Jesus was talking, of course. And what we're looking at this morning is the church as the city on a hill, meaning an allegorical expression that the church is to be a shining example of what a society is like when it is lived according to the ways of God. Last week, we looked at the church as a light. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Have you ever seen The Wizard of Oz? You remember the first view of the Emerald City? Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Woodman and the Cowardly Lion and Toto. You can't forget the dog Toto. They've been walking and walking. They had adventures and troubles and they slowly and wearily, they're climbing up a hill. And as they come to the top, suddenly, in the distance, they can see it. The Emerald City shining on a hill across the plain. Jerusalem is built on the top of a mountain, Mount Zion. In Bible days, the city was surrounded by a stone wall. The inner part of it still is. It's a different stone wall, but it's the same kind of material, the same kind of stone. And the particular kind of stone in that area, when the sun shines on it, especially at a low angle like sunrise or sunset, the stone reflects back the sunlight in a way that gives the wall a shining gold color. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. Maybe you've been blessed as I have to see it in person. But when people were going up to Jerusalem, and they literally went up, they were climbing that mountain, it really did look like a shining city on a hill. That was God's original purpose for the nation of Israel, to live according to the ways of God in such a way that it demonstrated the blessings of following God so that all the people around, all the other nations, would also want to follow God. They were to demonstrate the blessings of following God so as to invite everyone to follow God like a shining city that beckons you, come on up. And this did work sometimes. A lot of people are not aware that the Bible says that when the Israelites, the Hebrews, left Egypt under Moses, when 
God set them free from their slavery, they were followed by thousands of people that the Bible calls a mixed multitude. In other words, they weren't Hebrews. Some were Egyptians, some were other ethnic groups, uh, maybe other slave groups, others who were in the area, but they had seen the difference, seen the blessings of God, of, of following God. They had seen how the plagues, at least the later ones, uh, hit the Egyptians but spared the Israelites. And the people around were attracted to that. And they followed, they went with the Israelites and Moses, Moses when they went out of Egypt. And Moses didn't send them back. Instead, God gave him a rule, uh, a, a process for taking these people into the community. They became proselytes, which means uh, non-Hebrew followers of God. And then if they went all the way, they could actually become members of the community. And many thousands of them did. There's the story of Rahab, who hid the Hebrew spies in Jericho. She said, we've seen what God has done as he has brought you all out of slavery and across the desert, and I want to be a part of you all. She renounced her own old pagan religion and nationality. She became a follower of God. She actually became an ancestor of King David and of Jesus. Ruth from Moab left her religion and people and became an ancestor of King David and Jesus. These people and many more saw God's favor on the Israelites, saw the advantages of living according to God's law living according to the ways of God. So, what are the ways of God? Well, in the Old Testament, it was the law. And the law was broken down into three parts. They're not divided up that way with subheads in the Bible. But there was the civil law that governed the nation of Israel. Laws about uh, murder and, you know, things like that. Civil laws. There were the religious laws that governed the Jewish religion about how you were to go about doing the religious stuff. And there were the moral laws that described the right way to live, the Ten Commandments, things like that. In the New Testament, we're not guided by the law. New Testament meaning since Jesus' death and resurrection and the day of Pentecost when he sent the Holy Spirit and right up until now, the church age, we're guided not by the law, but by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So what is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus? It just means allowing the Holy Spirit of God to guide you. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says that this is what that looks like. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul goes on and comments, there's no law against these things. Now, somebody says, okay, I got it. I, I see what you want. A shining city on a hill. We can do that. Stand back. I got this. Unfortunately, human beings have a tendency to see that. I think that's why very often God doesn't let us see the end goal. Because we can say, oh, I know how to get there from here. I, I know a shortcut. For, forget it, God. I'll, I'll just go straight there. I'll meet you there. And it doesn't work. When people grab the vision but try to do it by their own power, Sometimes the church tries to become a shining city by forcibly excluding from the community those who believe differently than the rulers do. This does not have good results. Roman Catholicism under the Spanish Inquisition, people tortured for believing things differently. It wasn't just the Catholics the Protestants had their own. John Calvin set up uh, the civil administration of the city of Geneva in Switzerland under his rules. Some of the early American colonies did the same kinds of things. Excluded people. If you didn't follow their rules, if you weren't a Puritan in uh, Massachusetts, for instance, if you weren't a Catholic in Maryland at, at certain times, uh, then you had to get out. You weren't welcome. Some of you may be old enough to remember the troubles in Ireland between the Protestants and the Catholics. And many of these, they were not just trying to exclude people that differed from them. They were killing them, believing they were doing God's will by killing fellow Christians who saw things a little differently. I would venture to say that when the world sees that, they're not especially attracted. They don't want to say, oh, yes, I want to be a part of that. Sometimes the church tries to become a shining city by political means. People say the way to advance God's kingdom on earth is to elect politicians who will pass laws that enforce a Christian worldview. Now, let me say I'm all in favor of electing people to government or putting people in any position of authority who know how to hear God and want to hear God and want to follow God and do the right thing. The problem is, in today's American political and religious landscape, there are basically two pretty much opposite ideas of what a Christian worldview is. And people on both sides say, well, our viewpoint is so obviously right and biblical that anyone who doesn't agree with our political views can't possibly be a good Christian. Now, I'm not going to argue here the pros and cons of different laws or different political views. The point is when the world sees Christians arguing and name-calling over these things from either side, they don't see the church 
as a shining city. They see it as a slimy cesspool. Instead of attracting people to Jesus, it repels them. But there are some examples of the church as a shining city. The church being the kind of a community that other people, outsiders, saw and said, that's for me, I want to be a part of that. We first see it with the first Christians on the day of Pentecost. I'm reading from Acts 2, 41 to 47. What has just happened is the Holy Spirit has come on the 120 followers of Jesus in the upper room, and uh, they've gone down into the streets, uh, speaking in other languages to a crowd that was attracted by fire and loud wind noises and everything. And, and then Peter preached to them and told them about Jesus. And we pick it up on Acts 2, starting in verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Okay, so just so you have the picture, the church in the morning, there were 120 people in the church. In the evening, there were 3,120 people. So that, that's some growth. What are you going to do with those folks? Verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now notice, these are you got two basic groups here. You got the Hebrew Jews, and you got the Greek-speaking Jews, and they'll come to some, some issues later on in the book of Acts. You got people from all over the place, Ashkenazi and Sephardic. I'm not sure if those distinctions were go back that far, but they're all together. Those divisions are broken. They're all together. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 35 to 35, uh, shows that uh, uh, by a little while later, this is still going on. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. Not because God's great blessing was upon them all. Notice this. Not because God printed money for them. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. The first Christians showed the world what it meant to love one another. People could see that they were followers of Jesus by the way that they loved one another. I've been reading a fascinating book about the growth of the church in the first centuries 
And it makes the point that there was not targeted evangelistic efforts. They didn't go out and preach crusades to stadiums full of people. They took care of each other. They loved each other. Back in the ancient days, there was no government welfare, and so uh, groups of people would form uh, burial societies, care and burial societies, and they would all put in a little bit of money, and then when one of them died, the pool of money would be there to give them a proper burial. And the church acted that way, and people saw it that way, and saw how well they took care of each other and wanted to be a part of it. Back in the 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, when I first became a Christian, the days of what's called the Jesus Movement, there were some Christian communes, groups of Christians that would come to live together, and other people would see them and see how they loved each other and how they got along with each other. You know, they it would have been really dull for one of those reality TV shows where they put a bunch of strangers in the house and watch them fight because they loved each other. They didn't fight. They took care of each other. Revivals in the 80s and 90s, uh, Toronto, Brownsville, various other places were noted for the mix of races and classes and backgrounds of people who all came to the Lord and worshiped together and loved one another. Do you know where the church is growing fastest, the nation in the world where the church is growing fastest? It's Iran. China's right up there. Places like that where you only are a Christian if you really are serious about it because it's against the law and it might mean your life. But it's growing because people see how these Christians love one another. They take care of each other. All of these things have in common the fact that Christians loved each other in ways that the world could see. And it made the people of the world say, wow, I want to be part of that. Now, ideally, I should have been able, when I was looking for examples of the church as a shining city on a hill demonstrating the love of God, I should have been able to point to every Christian church and congregation and small group as examples of that. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So how do we make it true of our church, of our group? How do we live out the ways of God together so the world sees us as a shining city on a hill and wants to climb up and come in the walls and be a part? Because the gates of the church are wide open all the time. First, we need to keep a good reputation in the community. Scandals and infighting are not attractive to say the least. Acts 2.47 says the first Christians enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. Second, do good things that help people. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Twenty years ago, when I lived in 
Maryland, outside of Baltimore, there was a church, uh, not my church, uh, an independent uh, non-denominational church called Rock City Church. It was in a suburb of Baltimore. It originally was the Rock Church because it was built on the Rock of Jesus, but they changed their name from Rock Church to Rock City Church because they felt God calling them, even though they were located in a suburb, they felt God calling them to emphasize a focus on the city. And one of the things they did, they had addiction ministries and single mothers ministries and things like that, feeding, you know, uh, uh, food ministries, food pantries. A lot of churches do that. And they're, all, they're good. But this church, a group of church people, including families, would move into an apartment building in inner city Baltimore. They would all move into the same apartment building and they would start having block parties to introduce themselves to neighbors. They would start tutoring programs and mentoring and such in the local schools nearby and in, in the the uh, in the building there, their neighbors in the other apartments. And this was not gentrification. Many of these people were just moving from some other inner city place. But they all came together specifically to be the church, to demonstrate what it looks like to live as Christians. As far as I can tell from the church's website, that is still going on in, in one form or another. Do good things that help people. And third, most of all, we Christians need to demonstrate love for each other. Jesus said in our memory verse, that will be the proof to the world that we are his followers. And somebody says, but isn't that selfish and exclusive? Shouldn't we love everyone? Of course we should love everyone. But especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now hold on a moment, I'll show you. Galatians 6.10. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. In the verse just before our memory verse, John 13, 34, Jesus says, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Earlier in his ministry, somebody asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment. Let me read you his answer from Matthew 22, 37 to 39. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now at the Last Supper, which was his last chance to speak freely to his followers before he was arrested and killed, Jesus basically says to his followers, listen, you know the two greatest of the old commandments. Love God with everything you've got and love other people as much as you love yourself. Those are good. But for all of you who are following me, you get a new commandment. Love each other the same way I love you. That's a new commandment. And the reason that God never gave that commandment before 
is because it is impossible for normal fallen human beings to fulfill. Anyone can do the first two. Anyone can love God as much as they can, by definition. And anyone can learn to love other people the same way they love themselves. Because we love ourselves with human love, and we can love other people the same way. We can learn that. But nobody can love the way Jesus loves, except those who have the Spirit of Jesus living in them. That's why Jesus gave this new commandment in the same conversation where he promised the Holy Spirit. Only Christians who by definition have the Holy Spirit living in them have the spiritual ability to love each other the way Jesus loves us. Keeping a good reputation is good, but any group can do that. Doing things that help people is good. But there are plenty of purely secular groups, plenty of groups from other religions that do that. If the church is ever going to truly be a shining city on a hill, we have to do things that only the church can do. The things that only the church can do are the things that can only be done by those who are filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit of God. And the biggest of those things is to love one another the way Jesus loves us. So how does Jesus love us? Forgivingly. Unconditionally. Sacrificially. Without limit. And that's how we need to love one another. Christians need to love each other. Not just other members of our own clique or our own congregation or even our own nationality or ethnic group. We need to let the world see that we love every other Christian in the world the same way Jesus loves us. Forgivingly, unconditionally, sacrificially, and without limit. But this doesn't just apply to individuals. As churches... If we're going to be the shining city on a hill, as churches, we need to demonstrate the love of Jesus toward every other Christian church, not just those in our denomination or our movement or our theological or political persuasion, but every other Christian church in the world, even the ones that we think are wrong on certain issues. Every church needs to publicly and privately show that we love every other church the same way Jesus loves us, forgivingly, unconditionally, sacrificially, and without limit. That's not much of what most of the world is seeing right now, especially in America. But it can happen by the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit. Pray for that. Work for that. Ask God to show you how you can do a better job of demonstrating his love. And ask God how your church can do a better job of it. If God's church is ever going to be that shining city on a hill, we have to start living out our memory verse.
So let's repeat that together. John thirteen thirty five. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. John thirteen thirty five. Arise, O oh God, arise, O oh God, to your resting place. Thank you for listening to this sermon, and I pray it blessed you. Again, I'm Pastor David Wentz. And for more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, please visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. May God bless you as we do Christianity together. See you next time.